Welcome to another episode of If I Go Missing. I'm Megan. And hi, I'm Lynn. Today, we're going to tell you the story of missing anchor woman Jody Poozentrude. The case has been one of extreme interest to me. I've even read books regarding this case, probably because it happened literally six days after I was born. Long Prairie, Minnesota was both the birthplace and hometown of Hoosentrude. She was born on June 5, 1968. During her high school years, Jody demonstrated exceptional skills in golf, and she was involved in golf tournaments up until the day she disappeared. It was during her high school years that she realized she aspired to become a news anchor. Jody pursued higher education at St. Cloud State University, where she majored in mass communications and speech communications. She completed her bachelor's degree in 1990. Upon completing her studies, she secured employment at various television stations before eventually landing a morning anchor position at KIMT-TV in Mason City, Iowa, which was just a four-hour drive from her hometown. She adjusted well to her new job in city, and her co-workers described her as cheerful and energetic. Despite the early morning shifts, she also formed a social circle that included John Van Syce, an older man. In the days preceding Hoosen Troop's disappearance, her routine appeared unremarkable. She participated in a water skiing expedition in Iowa City, including a group of friends that included Van Syce. One day prior to her disappearance, Hoosen Troop competed in a golf tournament. Later, she visited the home of John Van Syce to watch a videotape he had created for a surprise birthday celebration he had thrown for her earlier that month. It is important to note that Van Syce and Jody were not lovers. It's been 28 and a half years at this point since the beloved anchorwoman Jody Hoosentroop failed to show up for her shift on the morning news. The 27-year-old from Long Prairie, Minnesota found her way to Mason City, Iowa, the latest of several stops she had made on the common broadcast journalist path from market to an increasingly bigger market. She was a morning anchor at KIMT-TV serving North Central Iowa and Southeastern Minnesota, and she was up before dawn every day in time for daybreak at 6 a.m. She aspired to go national one day. However, someone had other plans. Despite many theories and potential suspects, no arrests have been made and Jody's whereabouts remain unknown. However, new developments have emerged in recent years, many from anonymous sources, indicating the level of fear that some still have surrounding this case. Jody Hoosentrip moved to Mason City, Iowa in late 1993 and quickly became an active member of the community. As the anchor of a morning news show, Jody was a local favorite, a woman with many friends and no known enemies. At approximately 4.30 on Tuesday, June 27, 1995, CBS affiliate KIMT-TV morning and noon anchorwoman and producer Jody Sue Hoosentrude was abducted from the parking lot of her apartment located at 600 North Kentucky Avenue in Mason City, Iowa. Jody usually arrived at work between 3 and 4 a.m. And when she hadn't arrived by 4 a.m., her producer Amy Kunz called her. Jody answered the phone and told Kunz she had overslept and she stated that she would be in shortly. Nothing in Jody's tone of voice indicated that anything was wrong. When Jody didn't show up by airtime, Amy anchored the news station and sent her first available person to check on Jody. This was, of course, after they had finished airing the morning news because all hands were on deck trying to get the news out. In different interviews, Amy has said that she was honestly at first like a little mad at Jody for being late, 
kind of just, you know, like irritated as you are when coworkers are late and you're relying on them. But as much as she was frustrated, she was also worried that something bad had happened to Jody. Around 7 a.m., officers found them something. Around 7 a.m., officers first arrived at Jody's apartment. Upon their arrival, officers noticed a number of Jody's personal possessions strewn about the parking lot, including her purse, hairspray, hair dryer, and a pair of red high-heeled shoes. Jody usually carried these items to and from work in a canvas tote bag, and I guess she would, like, kind of get ready at work, almost. Makes sense. A lot especially, of people do that with the early morning shifts. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, like, especially getting up so early. Definitely. The key to Jody's vehicle was found bent inside the lock on the driver's side door. Mason City Police Lieutenant Frank Stern said the drag marks were visible on the rain-soaked pavement. Poor thing. I mean, it it sounds it sounds violent. Like she was she was fighting. She was trying to get in her car quick, or you know what I'm saying, or stuff just thrown everywhere and. Yeah, it definitely sounds like she made it to the car, got the key in there, and got taken. Poor thing. And it definitely sounds like there was a struggle of some sort. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like with her stuff everywhere and the key bent. I mean, it, that that's force. Yeah. The questioning of neighbors would only lead to more worrisome clues. All neighbors reported hearing or seeing from that morning a scream. Unfortunately, the screams were dismissed as nothing more than noisy campers. One man did mention seeing a light-colored van that morning. This is all the police were able to get from the neighbors that we know of. Because of the bent key, police suspected that someone had abducted the young news anchor as she was unlocking her car. But aside from that hunch, investigators didn't have very much to go on. A search of the area around Hosen Troop's apartment turned up no clues. However, police did find a palm print on the windshield and a loose strand of hair near her car. According to the Mason City Police Department, there's not a lot of evidence, but they do have definite parts of the investigation. But they do have definite parts of the investigation they're holding close to their chest in case someone comes forward one day with some information. With that said, a number of theories about Jody, who's in Troop's disappearance, have emerged since her disappearance in 1995. One idea is the John Van Syce theory. John first met Jody and her friend Annie Cruz at a bar. Though he was 22 years older than them, they hit it off and became friends. However, some of Jody's friends suspected that he wanted something more. He hosted Jody's 27th birthday party and even talked about naming his boat after her, which is a little much. Definitely. According to John, Jody was like a daughter to him and he treated her as he would his own children. Van Syce was the primary suspect in Jody's disappearance because he was the man that saw her last. He was really all we had to go on. He also gained notoriety like by showing up there and talking to police. Why did he show up there? I mean, was he like going to visit her? What, did he hear she was missing and he went there? Why would he just show up like that? To the best of my knowledge, I think he just showed up. Because I know that morning... He went for a run with this woman that he always went for runs with. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to go for a run that morning. And I think he actually did go on the run. And then sometime after that run, he ended up at Jody's. I don't remember what brought him there. But. Gotcha. Okay. Something else that really struck me as odd. So he tells police, you know, that Jody came over to watch that video. And after 20 minutes or so, 
she had at home. But he started talking about Jody in the past tense during his media interviews. Which is really that's, weird if somebody's only missing. Yeah, it's kind of like a little red flag there. Yeah, exactly. John was Jody's former acquaintance. And he was a seed salesman from Mason City, Iowa. Uh, we know he was 22 years older than her. Although the duo were not dating at the time of Jody's disappearance, they did spend a lot of time together. John exhibited an excessive amount of attention towards Jody and appeared to be overly invested in their supposed friendship. Mr. Van Syce says that he understands, you know, inquiry, curiosity, and speculation is all natural given the circumstance of Jody's disappearance. When there's a lack of information, disclosure, and insight, speculation often fills the void. To be fair, to this day, he still maintains his innocence, although he's like relocated to Arizona, I think. But he hosted her birthday party. He did all these things for her. He had a lot of opportunities that obviously he didn't take. Also, would she have struggled with him? I mean, it, it seems like she would kind of go wi more willing with him because of their friendship. She wouldn't be suspicious or, you know, she... It just, the struggle kind of almost makes it sound like maybe it wasn't him unless he came forcibly at her. That's actually a pretty good thought because, I mean, like you said, he had a lot of opportunities. I mean, the night before she disappeared was a prime opportunity. Yeah. If she went to his apartment yeah. or house or whatever, like he said, exactly. they're there alone together. Like anything could have happened. Yeah. But why wait till the next morning? Okay, so maybe the other theory comes into play, which is another one that I rank up there with the John theory. Okay, so let's discuss that possibility. So it's the possibility that Jody had a stalker. That one come to mind too, because of her position. Exactly. According to findjody.com, she would have been easy to stalk. Her home address, apartment, and phone number, they were listed in the public Mason City phone directory back when everybody had those big That's thick true. books. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, you could just look up somebody by their last name and find, yeah. like, everything about them. Yeah, that's true. But everybody complains about the internet. So informational supplying. Yeah. She also had the same work schedule, which is a big one. If you're going to like try yeah. to get somebody's schedule. Totally. Yeah. She also frequently talked about her social and community event plans when she was delivering the news. It's part of that job. I yeah. Mean, all of them do that. But what is concerning and gives this theory something to grasp onto is that Jody reported to police in October of 1994, less than a year before she disappeared, that someone driving a white truck had made her nervous. And she later told friends that she worried about being followed. She worried about this after two guys in a pickup truck followed her. I think she was running. She used to go out for her runs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Jody was even so bothered by this that she took a self-defense class. That was a smart move. As such, two men who didn't personally know Jody have emerged as suspects or possible suspects. One is Tony Jackson, a serial rapist who lived just two blocks from her work at the time of her disappearance. In 1997, he was arrested and convicted of raping four women. While serving life in prison for his crimes, he allegedly told another prisoner that he had killed Jody, who's in truth. Jackson purportedly rapped, she's a stiffen around tiffin in a pileage of silage in a bilo low below, 
which led police to search silos. Hello, silage. Makes sense. In Tiffin, Iowa. Stiffin and Tiffin. Makes sense. Tiffin was only like two hours away from Mason City as well, so it wasn't like out of the question. No, not at all. However, their search, they didn't find anything. And in 1999, the Mason City Police Department stated that Jackson was no longer considered a suspect. Jackson, for his part, has also decided to insist upon his innocence. And maybe he did it for his attention or thought it was some joke. I mean, he's he's obviously a sick person. You may have thought it was just some crazy joke in his own mind. A lot of high-profile cases have that yeah. unfortunate side effect. That's true, too. Very true. Another suspect was Jerry Burns. In 2018, DNA connected him to the murder of 18-year-old Michelle Martinko, a young blonde woman killed in Iowa in 1979. Not only did Martinko and Jody resemble each other, but according to CBS News, Burns even brought up Jody's name during his interrogation. Other theories about Jody's disappearance suggest more of a conspiracy at play. One proposes that she was killed for investigating the death of Billy Pruin, someone who happened to be her friend. Three months before Jody went missing, her friend Billy Pruin was mysteriously found dead in his home on April 5th, 1995. Although his death was initially ruled a suicide, the coroner changed the cause of death to inconclusive after further examination. Sometime before his death, he had mentioned to people that he was scared something could happen to him. Jody never believed her friend committed suicide either. In the book that I read called Dead Air, it mentions that there were some very unusual circumstances surrounding Pruin's death, including the fact that there was no gunshot residue on his body, yet he was supposed to have shot himself. Billy Pruin was also a well-known farmer in the area, and he had been vocal about Mason City's growing methamphetamine problem, which could have upset local drug traffickers. Like, perhaps it was a drug operative that wanted to silence him. I think it's very possible Jody was looking into his death and maybe started asking one too many questions. However, I will throw this out there that Billy's family does not think this is the case. Like, his daughters that are still alive. Yeah. They don't think that... The cases are connected. Drug people don't play. I'm not being judgmental. They don't play. And they don't leave loose ends. No, they don't want to go to jail. If Jody knew something, yeah. And why would that van be, why would she have seen that van? I don't don't know, just puzzle pieces. However, like I said, along with Billy Pruin's daughters, police, and even private investigators all agree there's no connection between Billy Pruin's death and Jody's disappearance. Even though they happened, you know, like three months apart, two months apart. Okay. I have no reason not to give them that one, but I don't know. There could be connection. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not like a, it's not as airtight as the stalker theory. Yeah. But it does raise a lot of questions. Yeah. Because, I mean, just that, that profession tends to bring a lot of stalkers and wannabes and whatever. So, but... I don't know. It's definitely interesting that she could have uncovered something. Another theory suggests that someone within the Mason City Police Department killed her. According to AETV, Mason City Police Officer Maria Ohl claimed that an informant told her that the police were involved in Jody's abduction. Indeed, when FindJody.com financed four billboards to raise awareness about her case, one of them was vandalized with the name of Frank Stearns, 
a retired Mason City Police Department investigator, and the word machine shed. Police never found out who vandalized it and concluded it was done by someone with their own agenda. That's kind of weird, though. It sounds more like a framing of Frank Stern. If this is true, like, if this theory is, like, the true theory, like, the one, Mm -hmm. I think somebody else did it, and they're trying to point it at him. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Though this case was a while ago, a private investigator named Steve Ridge believes there are people still alive out there who know information and could help this case along. Ridge remains at the forefront of the investigation and continues to receive leads. In an exclusive interview with Iowa's News Now, Ridge revealed that Jody Husentrout never owned the little red Mazda Miata she was driving, as she was so proud of this car, like it was her dream car. But until recently, nobody knew that she did not actually own the car. Who owned the car? So she was actually trying to work out a deal with this person she planned on buying it from. Mm -hmm. The car was never in her name and there was never a sale. However, after her disappearance, the man agreed to a sale price with Jody's mom. So Ridge hopes this new information will put an end to some, you know, some of the speculation that's been around this case. Yeah. As early as October 4th of 2023, we're still finding out new information, though. Steve Ridge, once again, found out something else about this case. Through his digging, he learned that Jody had a very secret final fling with a man she met just 10 days before she went missing. Oh. Ridge was able to track down the mystery man with, with whom... Really? Ridge was able to track down the mystery man whom police had cleared years ago after the first declaring him a person of interest. He believes jealousy was a factor in Jody's disappearance and, you know, possible murder and has since said that she has strong admirers and that her newfound love interest might have infuriated other suitors. So while he didn't do it, maybe somebody else did because of him. Okay, this is getting interesting. Jody met her 27-year-old suitor at a bar and they hit it off instantly. He said the couple spoke just about every day and she initiated the calls. Ridge said he met the man, and the man gave him a tour of his Mason City home where he stayed during their relationship. That home was the last place Jody went on a date before she went missing. How how long before? Do they know? Five days. Five days before her disappearance, Jody and her beau sat on the back deck having drinks overlooking the lake. That's recent. The man told Steve Ridge that he and Jody had an immediate attraction and bond. Ridge strongly believes, without a doubt, that this relationship was clearly a factor in what happened to Jody, because what happened to her, he says, was not a random act of violence. Ridge has also doubled the reward to fifty thousand for information that will help locate Jody. He says he did this because money can be an incentive to bring people forward that otherwise might have been more reluctant. I agree with that. I mean, you know, money speaks to some people and some people, okay, I get $50,000. I can like leave. I can, I can get out of here and I can help Jody at the same time. So yeah, money definitely might help. Yeah. Money talks for sure. Yeah, definitely. Jody was declared legally dead in 2001, but her case still sparks intriguing curiosity in all who hear it. If you have any information concerning Jody Husentrout's unsolved disappearance, 
please contact Lieutenant Frank Stearns at the Mason City Police Department at 641-421-3001.